A warning. Today's episode will discuss alcoholism, drugs, and sexual situations. If these things are triggers for you, you may want to stop now and try another episode. Also, while I have your attention, alcoholism is a disease. Today, we will be discussing the delusional human mentality surrounding the ego. This is not advice about how to deal with addiction. It is only thoughtful conversation in regards to examining our own egos. Thanks. I had this experience over the weekend. Me and Tina went down to my sister's place and we stayed there. She has three young boys now. And she's like, we're going to do an egg hunt for them. And like the neighbor's kids are going to participate. And they live in like a little cul-de-sac in suburban Maryland. And so we were like, sure, we'll stay. The night before, me and Tina went out at like 1030 at night. And we're like hiding eggs in these people's yards. And honestly, I felt a little bit put upon. <laughs> like I, <laughs> to I was hide like, the eggs? Yeah, like I was like, these are their kids. I like, I don't want to do but anyways, whatever. So we hide the eggs and then the next morning we get up and they were supposed to start at like 10 a.m. And I was up like super late, very addictively reading ex-Jehovah's Witness subreddit blogs, which is another whole thing. But but I so I finally woke up like right before 10 a.m. and went out there and like my sister and brother-in-law are out there and there's all these little kids out there. And then their parents are out there who are just like these like, you know, middle-aged dorks. And as soon as I stepped out there, I was like... I don't want to have to engage with these people for any reason because I know I have nothing to say to them. And sure enough, like at one point, like my I was standing with my sister and her and her like infant and uh, the one like father from one of the houses came over and she's like, this is my brother. Him and his girlfriend hit all the eggs last night. And I introduced myself and then he was like, he's like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I, I, I was like, I live in Philadelphia. And he's like, oh, cool. What part? In my head, I was just like, do you like know anything about Philadelphia? Like, is this yeah. going to make a difference? I live in a neighborhood that used to be a manufacturing center, and now it's been gentrified. <laughs> and a lot of the people that used to live there aren't happy about it. Like, conversation over. And that was it. He like literally, he had nothing to say to me. At that point, I think I was like, I got to go back inside. I don't, I don't want to be around this anymore. Or he read your behavior from being so closed off to any conversation. He just ended it after. No, that's not, that's not true. I'm a great liar and I'm very charming. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc. Insert bad friends joke here. And this is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And if we are speaking to you, then please, please subscribe to the podcast. Tell a friend about us. Help us find our people. Rate us with five stars and write a thoughtful review if you like what you hear. On Apple iTunes, the Purple Podcast app would be very helpful. Thanks, guys. I'm very excited to have my guest today, an old friend, Russell Imwald. And as you may have gleaned from the cold open, Russell is here to celebrate his vulnerability. He is just the beautiful, transparent, articulate type of earth monster that openly owns the limits of his own ego. And he's just so much fun to listen to. But Russell didn't always have this much self-awareness. Like all of us, he has marched to his own relentless delusional path to get to this perspective. And what we are going to explore today are the delusional aspects of his career as a drinker and drugger. Mostly a drinker. 
the delusions that got him into it, the ones he used to keep it going, and how he eventually changed his story and quit. Here's Russell. You know, I'm from an upper middle class family. I'm a, a white guy. I identify with my biological sex that I was born with. You know, like things weren't actually very hard for me on, on paper, but like there was like a lot of dysfunction in my growing up at home. Like I was raised Jehovah's Witness, which is a very conservative and restrictive religion. I left that when I was 14 to the great pain of my mother. And yeah, you know, I had like a full year and a half where she wouldn't even speak to me when I was in high school. Like she just shut down on me and she was losing her firstborn child. She thought, I guess, and probably still thinks, you know, for all eternity. And, you know, that was not easy. And then my father was a workaholic with, you know, a bit of a temper and was not one to spare the rod. And then I had like untreated ADHD and partially treated depression. And so for years, I was just kind of just like a pinball of like unchecked emotions and impulses that were not controlled in any way. Anyone else relating to that last bit? Just me? Got it. And so I would just be bouncing around through my life being like, oh, uh, so-and-so, let me talk you into going out and getting hospital drunk with me tonight to a point where it's, it's going to be dangerous for both of us. Oh, oh like so-and-so, I, I love you, but also like I'm going to get like hammered at a party with you and then I'm going to hit on a woman in front of you, which, you know, I, I did once to like one of my ex-girlfriends. And I think about that to this day and feel miserable about that. I mean, she doesn't care anymore, but like, but like when I think about like having done that then you know they are hard pills to swallow and a lot of it just stems from having like too harsh of a set of boundaries and then just going to like a set of boundaries that didn't exist anymore there was no sex talks at home or anything like that there was never a drug talk he was only in high school when he designated his family's religion as an old story of his past and with his parents no longer helping to guide his narrative russell was free to begin filling in the blanks with a new story a new philosophy towards life, a new delusion to drive him. I remember at the time, Jim Gaffigan was doing these Rolling Rock commercials, and he was like the first stand-up comedian I'd really gotten into, and I just thought these Rolling Rock commercials were so funny that I had to try the beer. You were in high school? Yeah. And he would he would do these commercials where he was like out fly fishing in a river somewhere, and he would hold up like the Rolling Rock bottle and be like, you see that uh, horse on the bottle there? He's uh, winked at me twice, once before I met my ex-wife and once before I got a car for like a really great deal. <laughs> that was like, you know, I didn't, I don't think I really knew what comedy was other than like movies at that point. So that was the smartest and funniest thing I'd ever heard. And I was like, I bet if I drink that, I'll be smart and funny just like him. Did you hear it? Delusion! You know, like he was a recovered alcoholic. He's talking about his dad, not Jim Gaffigan. But I think he was worried that if he tried to push too hard on keeping me from not drinking, they would just push me to do it more. And he was probably right. But the fact of the matter is, it's just in the blood and there's no getting around it. But the having kind of my parents fade away in my last few years of high school was, I don't know, probably to my detriment. I've got to think that hit pretty hard, even if you weren't registering it so much at the time. Yeah, well, at the time, I think I was just like, this is great. I, I'll do whatever I want forever. And I think that probably set that sort of attitude in motion when I went away to college. I'll do whatever I want forever. It sounds simple. It might even sound general. But this was absolutely the story that I saw Russell relentlessly manifesting when I met him in art school our freshman year of college. 
I think the romanticization of being like the, you know, tortured drug and alcohol affected artist was like, I remember one of my roommates who was like a writing major and he kind of taught me if you're a writer, you're just like Hemingway and you're just drunk on rum all the time and like chain smoking and everything's a struggle and you hate the world, but you're trying to like sum up all its beauty in your words. And I think, you know, like probably every shithead 19 year old, I just was like, yeah, I can do that. I think within like the first month, I didn't have a lot of money, but like one of the first things I spent the money on that I had was to like split a gram of cocaine with uh, a previous partner of yours. Right. And that was like fun for a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this is cool. And then what else can we try? Russell was an 18 year old, five foot six, 120 pound moving train of Jack Black infused comedy, fueled by a constant binge of pizza by the slice, cheap beer and Adderall. I always knew how much money was in his bank account because even though he was broke, he was constantly insisting on unnecessarily buying Chinese food for everyone. Power move. And every time he would offer, he would tell you exactly how much money he had in his bank account. Come on, I have $48.17 in my checking, but I have my dad's MasterCard. You want beef and broccoli or not? Maria, what are you having, lo mein? You want lo mein? We'd be like, you don't have to do this. I'm not even hungry. Fun fact about Chinese food places is they'll take your credit card over the phone. They'll also buy you cigarettes and beer that way too. If they sold beer in the store, they just bring you something and then they go to 7-Eleven and pick up the cigarettes for you. <laughs> was my only hack, which was basically using my parents' credit card $40 at a time once every couple of weeks. I always felt like it was an uncomfortable offer. Why are you telling me about your money? Why are you trying to buy me dinner when you don't have any money? Why are you being so aggressive and not taking no for an answer? Turns out, it was about booze the whole time. In art school, the most dysfunctional guy in the group gets to lead. And in my little circle, that was kind of Russ. Mostly because he wouldn't take no for an answer. He was like the Cheshire cat of Alice in Wonderland, but feral. A prepubescent Hunter S. Thompson that took all the drugs, drank all the drinks, and had memorized every Tenacious D song on guitar. I feel like you got compared to Jack Black a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when I think about that now, I just think about how embarrassing that is. I, I kind of stoked that myself. I had probably an unhealthy fascination with him. I mean, I was like really into the HBO Tenacious D series and I learned like all their songs when they first put that album out. Just a quick note from my mom. Mom, Tenacious D is comedian Jack Black's rock and roll comedy duo. The music actually rocks. It's super catchy, but it's a joke. Anyway, Jack Black was the unlikely rock and roll frontman that Russell sort of unconsciously, consciously modeled himself after. I don't think there's anyone better at peacocking in a comedic way than he is. I bring it up because this is an excellent way to describe 18-year-old Russell. No one was a better or more unlikely peacock than him. Funny and arrogant as hell, he was out of control from day one. Freshly escaped from the clutches of his rural Maryland upbringing and brand new to the city, shouting his mission like a battle cry on himself. I'll do whatever I want forever. Delusion! We went to school in Center City, Philadelphia. A month into freshman year, he tried a sort of mystery drug that was trending at our school. Some people said they were morning glory flower pods. Other people told me they were marigold flower pods. I think the, the actual narcotic name for what was the active like ingredient was is Detora, but I, I 
could be wrong. I do know that whatever it is has a lot of strychnine in it. You know, it's like it's poison, but it's also a dissociative and a I think it's maybe not right to call it a, a psychedelic, but I'm sure that some people wanted to have had like hallucinations and other stuff like that. These very questionable locally grown narcotics could be hallucinogens. We're getting passed around freshman year. I wasn't a drug guy myself, but Russell had seen another friend of ours trying them first. She was sitting like on the floor of her bedroom with like a single desk lamp on the floor with her. That was the only light. And she had she had ripped the bathroom mirror out of the wall and carried wow. it carried it into the bedroom with her. And she had like a, a, a container full of foundation powder. And I was like, hey, what's going on? And I thought she because I thought she was putting on makeup and she reached her fingers into the foundation powder and then just pushed them all into her mouth. <laughs> it was just like eating makeup. I was like, what is going on? And I, I think I kind of hung out with her for a while after that. Kind of a startling image if you ask me, but it didn't deter Russell. This apparently fell well within the bounds of doing whatever he wanted forever. He came over to our dorm one night and ate about 200 of the mystery seeds in a peanut butter sandwich. Probably an hour after I ate them, I don't remember anything else. Like I said, it's a dissociative, so I just like was, I was gone. A lot of this next part was recounted to him by his girlfriend at the time and campus security. I was like digging in the dirt in the courtyard of my building at one point. I was s sitting in my bathtub, like trying to pull water out of the faucet that wasn't there. Delusion! And then eventually, I think late into the night, she put me into bed and she said to my three roommates, he's going to sleep now. Don't like let him leave the room. No one paid attention. Russell crawled out from the top bunk like a zombie on acid and walked out. At some point during the witching hour, I made it into the parking lot next to our building where like a sculpture lab was. And I had put on a pair of boxers, uh, a sandal and a belt. So the security guards found me out there kind of muttering to myself and just unintelligible gobbledygook. And that's when the weekend began. I remember like the first time coming into consciousness, I was at a hospital, kind of in a waiting area. I remember seeing at least one or two security guards that I recognized, and then the RA who was on duty for the night, and she seemed very concerned uh, about me. And then I went out again, and I think the next time I came to, I was in another hospital at that point, because I don't think they knew what was up with me at the first one. I believe had come to see me at that point. His girlfriend, whom he had only met four weeks prior, tell me she wasn't being driven by some kind of delusion here. She had found out where I was, and then they she had to leave, and then they took me to another place, which was a mental health facility out in Roxborough. And there I was just kind of like put into basically holding for the rest of the weekend until I could be seen by a mental health court judge and then discharged either to uh, a guardian or on my own recognizance. I remember being woken up to take medicine a couple of times, and I think they were just giving me sleeping pills because they didn't know what I was going to do or what state I was really in. They put me in ankle and wrist restraints. And like, you know, you can still walk and like you're like roped to other people. Not like I wasn't the fugitive. Right. <laughs> I didn't kill my wife, but it was a wake up call for 18 year old Russell. Delusion! Do you hear him rewriting the story all of these years later? This was no wake up call. This is act one. On Monday morning, he was supposed to stand in front of a judge, but something changed. He was standing out in front of the courthouse waiting, smoking a cigarette, when suddenly... My mom came walking up the sidewalk and, you know, I, I kind of, I had a little bit of a breakdown and I think just like kind of hugged her and started crying and 
Then I heard the judge has released you. And that was it. I went to sleep in my dorm room. My mom went and met with the dean of the school. He lied and said that he had eaten the seeds off campus. There weren't any real repercussions. He was back in student rotation by Tuesday. And don't forget, this was a month into school. I went and saw the school therapist for a while, which was probably something I should have done more. But I was just, you know, I was young and rebelling against myself and everything else and just wanted to just do what I wanted to do. Oh, Earth Monster. There is an epidemic of us suffering from this simple, selfish, truly moronic, necessary, delusional mentality. I just want to do whatever I want to do. If only it were that simple. But unfortunately, left to our own devices, we fall quickly victim to our own selfish biases. Our own ugly egos bending over backwards to fulfill every empty desire that pops into our feeble little lizard brains. It doesn't work if we spend all of our time servicing ourselves. I really believe that we need to work in service of each other. Fortunately for our story, Russell didn't know that yet. He was out for himself, and so not even a full 24 hours after being discharged from an actual psych ward, he was back in the streets, looking again to fill his pleasure hole. Later that day or the day after, <clears throat> excuse me, I was like with and I think I was like, hey, so-and-so is having people over. Let's go get like stoned with them. And she was like, you just got out of the hospital. But I felt fine because you're young and your body's still in like great shape and you rebound quickly. And I was just like, well, like, you know, that was a that was weird. But like, I'm I'm through it. And, and you know, I'm essentially not in trouble. I love to hear the actual language that we use. Essentially not in trouble. In reality, he was just getting started. And trouble wasn't lurking mysteriously around the corner somewhere for future discovery. It was leading him from party to party, from one bad decision to the next. He ended up getting kicked out of the dorms later that year, and I can't even remember why. It doesn't matter. He moved into a studio apartment down the street, and at some point, he brought his ferret up to live with him from Maryland. It was the perfect pet for him. Cactus the ferret. Cactus did not live in a cage, ever. He slept in bed with Russell, or in the pile of takeout food boxes on the floor. He didn't have any boundaries. In fact, I had gone back to Maryland with Russell to pick him up, and we spent a night at Russell's parents' house. I slept in the spare bedroom where the door wasn't able to close shut on its own, and so I spent the whole night batting Cactus away from climbing into bed with me. Imagine that, a ferret that I had just met, running loose in the house, trying to spend the night in bed with me. No thank you. You know how they say pets reflect their owners? They start looking alike and acting alike? Well, by sophomore year, just before myself and another close friend of ours dropped out of college and moved to New York, Russell became the boundaryless ferret of Center City, Philadelphia. At any given time, you could find him kicking around between parties and trying to climb in bed with you. Every day was just like, what is an excuse to drink today? I'd be out with like friends walking somewhere and then we'd pass like a bar with an open window. I'd be like, hey, why don't we just grab like one and done? You know, I just like wanted to like get the ball roll. Or if I was dating someone and like something special happened for them, I'd be like, oh, it's a special occasion. Let's get a bottle of wine to celebrate or let's go out to dinner because I knew I'd be able to get away with ordering a couple of cocktails at dinner without like any sort of judgment necessarily. There was always a little bit of judgment, obviously, which I didn't see at the time because I was half in the bag. If you were wondering what those excuses are, I call them necessary delusions. And most of the time that we do this, we're not fooling anyone. Our behavior is all so transparent if anyone else is actually paying attention. It doesn't matter what you're saying. They can see what you're doing. It's just a little game that we play with ourselves to believe that we're keeping up appearances. It's funny, you don't think of yourself as being egotistical when you're in the middle of it. But I, I think now I realize like when I left UArts, I had like a goal set. I wasn't able to achieve that goal. I also didn't try that hard to reach it, which was just to go to like another conservatory in New York. 
And I probably, if I had worked a little harder, but could have done it, I would have joined you and Zach like the following year, but I, I, I didn't really follow through with it. So once I got one rejection, I was just like, well, whatever, I'll just go back to Philadelphia and this is the way that life is, baby, you know, just sex, drugs and rock and roll. Delusion. And that's, that's exactly how I was for a year. Russell and I had both been acting majors in college. We were both fixated on drama when we probably should have been exploring comedy. Russell was also a pretty decent musician. He can play drums, guitar, and some piano. After sophomore year, myself and another good friend of ours, Zach, left Philadelphia to study acting in New York. Russell stayed in Philly, and he got busy with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It started out, I would go and I'd buy a fifth of Old Crow and I'd buy a two liter of Coca-Cola and I would just drink whiskey and Cokes in my apartment by myself and just chain smoke. And then it got to a point where it was like, I wonder how much I like this without the Coca-Cola. And then it just became, I was like, I wonder how much I can drink in one night until I was able to drink a whole bottle in a night before like, you know, passing out or whatever. Drinking alone in his studio with no one but his ferret to talk to. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. Delusion. Coming up after the break, Russell's descent into rock bottom. Of course, he can't see it until he gets there. And then, of course, the climb. But first... One, four, three means I love you. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, show us some love on Venmo. Send $1.43 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo. And a big shout out to my Aunt Kathy and Uncle David in Cleveland, Ohio, who couldn't understand the relevance of this number when I did the plug in a past episode. Kathy, David, 143 is the number of the letters in the three words. I, one, love, four, you, three. I love you. So, 143 Aunt Kathy and Uncle David. Oh, and no pressure to download Venmo just for this reason. Gift giving can be hard, especially if the person that you're giving a gift to is rich or already has everything that they want. Or maybe they're poor, but they have no hobbies. <laughs> Why don't you give them a custom-made song? Go to ryanfine.com and click on custom songs. Ryan writes catchy and affordable music for any occasion. You can write him a little note describing everything that you're thinking about, pay him about 50 bucks, and he will send you back actual music that will surprise you and the person you are gifting it to. Go to ryanfine.com, click on custom songs. This isn't another commercial. We are back. And surprise, Russell has now burned himself out in Philadelphia. I had like a very unhealthy relationship with someone, all my fault. We were together for a year. She should have left me after like two months. I worked for this like restaurant company. All of my money was going to like alcohol and at that point cocaine. So I would be a month behind on rent always. And I burned my bridge with that job. I promoted myself to customer, as they say. <laughs> I was fully in the throes of binge drinking alcoholism. That woman left me. I mean, left me as generous. One day I went to her apartment. She's like, I don't want to see you for a week. And then when I went back, she was like, I have a new boyfriend. Here's your like suitcase full of clothes. I'm keeping your guitar because you owe me $200. And at that point, I, I think I bounced from couch to couch for like a week or two. And then eventually I made that hard phone call to mom and dad asking if I could come home. Back to rural Maryland with his family. 
It should have been a sobering moment, but Russell wasn't sober. I burned through three shitty kitchen jobs there and would just like get drunk off of my grandmother's box wine that she would leave in the garage. (laughs) Or I would make like friends with guys I worked with. And like I would go to some like party house in the county I grew up in. Every room was basically empty except for a terrible leather couch. People would just be there drinking 24 hours a day. There was like always like a cop waiting across the street for drunk teenagers to like leave so they could pull him over. His rock and roll lifestyle was essentially regressing to that of a teenager, but his time at home was short-lived. One night, driving back from work, slightly buzzed, his words, he crashed the car into a tree on his parents' street, a street that he had driven down thousands of times before. His dad came out to cut the tree up with the chainsaw, but when the tow truck driver called the cops, Russell failed the breathalyzer. He got a DUI. His parents were pretty much done at that point. They must have known that I had nothing, but they didn't know how to help me anymore. And they knew that they were no longer going to enable me. So they kicked me out and I had nowhere to go. My mom was like, there's a halfway house in Prince Frederick across the street from like where you work. I had a credit card with an $800 limit and I used it to stay in a Holiday Inn for like three nights before I ran out of money. My plan was to move to Baltimore where I would not need a car. I was like, I'll be back in the city. I'll be happier there. And it'll be like what I need. But like, I did not at that point commit to quitting drinking or anything like that. So I'm wondering, are you at this point accepting of this? Like, hey, I'm being super self-destructive and like, that's just where I'm at. Or are you thinking to yourself like, I'm a party guy. This is not a problem. What's the delusion, I guess? At this point, I'm still just a party guy. On the verge of checking into a halfway house and he's still confident that he's just a party guy. The delusion is just that I'm just having a great time and everyone else needs to get on board or get out of my way, basically. We are young. Who cares what happens tomorrow? Like, who cares? I have $50 left to my name and I'm going to spend it all tonight. And not having $50 is later Russell's problem. And I lived that as kind of like a personal philosophy for longer than I should have. To all of you earth monsters out there blaming your problems on location, delusion. In Baltimore, it was brand new city, same old Russell. I was fired from my first job in Baltimore for stealing not money, but beer. I was still stupid. I just like hadn't hit that like bottom yet. And I wouldn't in a very painful way, like for like another like two years, more or less. I basically had like almost no friends in Baltimore at that point. Things had not gone as well as I'd hoped that they would. Alone in a new place, drinking and not working, he was in need of a scene. And before long... He found one. I got this job after living there for eight months. And then all of a sudden I had like 30 friends and I was working at like a cool bar. It's called Golden West Cafe. I don't know about anymore, but at the time it was a hub for a lot of working musicians and other artists in the Baltimore area. Some who have gone on to critical and professional success. And that was exciting for me Mm -hmm. because I liked music. I thought I knew a lot about music before working there. And I became like so much more well-educated through music. And I made like a lot of like very good friends at that place. And I learned how to become like a really good cook at that place. And I have many positive memories. The scene surrounding the Golden West Cafe provided some much needed support to his rock and roll fantasy. No longer stealing his grandmother's boxed wine from the garage. He was back to living the dream which is obviously code for delusion. 
I would get off of work at 10 o'clock and I was already at a bar. And and what was your drinking like at that point? It was pretty aggressive. Everyone was like partying after work and, and finding out about Baltimore's like cool underground music scene, which I was like, you know, it's like one of those things that now I look back, I feel very cringe about like obsession with like coolness at that time in my life. I had a brief period of time where I had a one man show where I would take indie rock songs and hits from the 80s and I would transport pose them on the piano and I would do them lounge singer style. You were playing piano and singing? Yeah. And I I did that for a very well attended show at that place that I worked because it was also a venue. And that was like right when me and first started dating. I did that one show and then never again because most places don't have pianos. It had been years since he had poured himself into a creative project like that. I have always known Russell's creativity to express itself in flashes of brilliance. But like so many of us, there's always a good excuse not to continue. He met a girl around this time. And because Russell kept using her real name over and over again, we are instead going to call her... She was a couple of years younger than me and she was like freshly out of college. So she wasn't against like having a good time, but she was much more responsible and was much more focused on her personal and artistic goals at the time. She had gone to school for uh, dance and she had minored in physical therapy. That was her day job. And then she had this, at the time, a very successful dance company in Baltimore that she was a part of. I think a lot of like women in my life have seen me as like fun and recognized that I was just fun. And those who have been more willing to take a chance on me were either charmed in a moment of weakness of theirs and under different circumstances maybe would have like made a different decision was the latter. She was more fiercely independent. I didn't know anything at the time. I think I was just probably reciting things I had heard in movies or whatever. And I convinced her that we should make a go of it. I'm just drinking six nights a week like I have been for years at this point. And uh, no one's really telling me I need to stop. She really thought like that she could fix something about me. Delusion! How early in the day are you drinking? Well, on days off... I think that at this time I kind of got into drinking tequila occasionally and I would start by drinking like a tequila sunrise. Uh, in the morning? Yeah, like she would go to work. She had like a regular job out in the burbs and I'd be alone in the apartment. I would get up and knowing she's like gone all day and I've got nothing to do other than get drunk and watch episodes of Lost. And so that's what I would do. He's only 25 or 26 at this point. It occurs to me that a delusion born from this type of addiction is the idea that he had nothing better to do. When in reality, wouldn't almost anything have been better than that? I would try to slow down by mid-afternoon so that when she came home, I wasn't completely hammered and I would get dinner started or I would be like, hey, do you want me to pick up a pizza or something? I'd pop open a bottle of wine before she got home and I'd pour myself a glass and have one ready for her. So like there would be a little bit of an excuse. Pouring wine for when she arrived was just a smoother way to lean into the coming night's activities. She had a wild hair up her ass to go move into this like very cool old factory loft space where some of her other girlfriends were already living that she did dance with and a a bunch of like people that we knew from like the kind of Baltimore music and art scene. That's what we ended up doing, moved into this giant space that was way bigger than the two of us could ever possibly need. And at this point, my drinking has started to ramp up a bit more. But having our own place together, it seemed like it was a step up and we were like working towards something and things were more serious. Delusion. About 
eight months into us living there together, she was like, I don't want you to go out and drink one night or something like that. And then I was like, I'm going to go out and do this because I want to. And like, you're not the boss of me, basically. And, uh, you know, it really was uh, very upsetting for her. Also, I'll spill this detail. And it's something I was very embarrassed of at the time. I was, I'd become like a bedwetter from my drinking at that point on a fairly regular basis. Not always, but she'd wake me up in the middle of lunch. She'd be like, you, you pissed the bed. And we'd have to like flip the mattress and put new sheets on at like three in the morning. And it was, it was bad. Like that should have been the end of the road, but it wasn't. <clears throat> I commend him for spilling this detail, his words. And even though I'm sure that there are probably a couple of you out there giggling, I want you to take a moment to think about who you really are. Because even if you have not peed the bed as an adult, you've done something, Earth Monster. Go ahead, tell me that you haven't. I'll call you a liar. Anyway, needless to say, things eventually came to a boiling point. One day, Russell was at home, and his dad showed up. Had called him to intervene. He was like, you need to get your shit together, or you're going to like lose this woman. She really cares about you. She cares enough to call me to get me to come up here. I was like a little bit indignant and angry at first, you know? I was yeah. just like, I was mind your own business about it. But then as soon as he was gone, I ended up breaking down and realizing that I was in the wrong and I needed to do something. And that was probably step one. He went to a meeting with a coworker, but it turned out to be N.A., Narcotics Anonymous, not A.A., Alcoholics Anonymous. He got in the mixed up. And so it was like a really weird experience. So it didn't like really take for me right away. But like I, I was like, OK, I'm going to give this a try. And I didn't love the God aspect of it. But I, I knew I wanted to fix things and get better. And so I just was like, I'm just going to go cold turkey because I looked at people in AA or in recovery programs as just being like, weak and i was like i'm not like these people i'm better than this um, illusion yeah and i was like i can do this on my own and i did what's called white knuckling i white knuckled it he got a part in a play at his friend's theater company around the same time so even if sobriety didn't feel great he was enjoying having something creative to focus on um and sober in a way that like was painful too i was just like angry and sober i'm doing the play and everything's going well but on a personal level things at home are not great i didn't know how to really be a partner or boyfriend at the time i would say even at that point even though i'd had sex with a lot of people barely understood sex I don't think I really understood what my partners needed. I think I knew kind of like what I saw in porno. And I, I think I had just had a lot of sexual experiences with people where it wasn't like healthy because we just didn't talk about it. So who knows? Did you learn anything from that experience? No. And now that I was sober and realizing that it was a rude <laughs> awakening. Yeah, I wasn't connecting the dots on a lot of things. I guess, you know, that that's another delusion. It's just like when you're drinking or whatever, you're great at everything. There's just people who are like, I'm so much better of a driver when I've been drinking or whatever. I'm a great oh, cook when I've been drinking or just like, I'm so good at guitar when I've been drinking. It's just like, and then you see those people do any of those things. And you're like, I'll see you in the paper. So the relationship with was falling apart. I don't think she suspected anything, but I was like really miserable. And uh, then I met uh, a girl who was playing music for our show. And she was obviously like flirting with me a lot and giving me a lot of attention. And it made me feel good about myself. So shortly after that play ended, it became clear to me that that person was interested in me. And I was not really happy in my relationship. And so I broke up with like basically right around our like two year anniversary. Ba-ba-ba was pretty devastated by the news. Her first step was to make Russell a sumptuous feast. Broiled fish, green beans, and salad. A tall glass of Coca-Cola on ice waiting for him at the door when he got home. Just to bring in the night's coming activities. She wanted to go to therapy together. 
Russell said he would try it if she would set it up. They went once, but his heart wasn't in it. The truth of the matter is, is like it doesn't matter what I was saying about the relationship. What it actually was was that I was miserable because I had given up alcohol and my brain chemistry was completely trashed. And I was taking those feelings out on her by doing this. I moved back into a place I'd been living in before I was dating her. It was like a powder keg for me to like relapse in my drinking. It was like a 25 person, like not commune, but it was an unconventional living space with like 25 people living there. And we threw parties on a regular basis because it was also an art gallery. And I was like one of the oldest people living there. Shortly after he moved in, he called the girl that had been crushing on him from the play and made a date with her. He was ready to put the sex back into sex drugs and rock and roll. I started drinking again that night. But after essentially a one night stand, the girl told him that she was still in love with her ex-boyfriend. A reality started setting in then. I was like, uh, okay. That was kind of like a, a lodestar for me at the time. I was like, well, I have this other girl who's obviously interested in me. So I'm, I'm okay. I can not have to deal with my feelings. Right. Because I have another person I can immediately like start focusing my attention on. By the way, a lodestar is defined as a star that is used to guide the course of a ship. So, delusion. But then I was off to the races again. I'd broken the seal and I wasn't with There was no one there to judge me. And I was living with people who didn't know anything about my problems, really. I met this woman at a bar. I had just given her my number and like I dated her for like a month. And then I overslept because I got drunk and missed a date with her. And she like broke things off with me. More drinking, more empty sex, more messy kitchen jobs. You know the story. It is this pattern that each of us create for ourselves. This pattern that feels so unavoidable and relentless that we are perpetuating unconsciously. You hear people say it all the time. I don't know how I keep doing this. Well, then you must not be ready to see it because this whole song and dance is all so transparent. And regardless of your circumstances or outside factors that may be affecting your path, it's universal. There is only one person that controls you, and you are always your own common denominator. So we ask ourselves these questions. What do I really want? What do I really need? What am I really doing? Forget these stupid, hopeful words. What are my actions telling me? I was like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you figure it out? Why can't you get things together? And when I had like that moment where that woman broke things off with me. What do you think he did? Go ahead. Guess. I reached back out to because she had been like kind of sending me messages being like, hey, maybe we could go on like a first date again or something. They went on a date, air quotes. He invited her to a party at his commune. She got dressed up and he got drunk. They hooked up like nothing happened. After that, she said she didn't want to see him again until he got help. And Russell realized that he really wanted her back. So even though it was just another flimsy delusion to wrap himself in, he used it. He started by drinking one less drink every night until he could stop without getting sick, without getting the shakes. He began going to meetings. He got a sponsor and worked the program, all along telling himself this story. If he got sober, then he could get her back. Of course, that didn't happen. He ended up marrying the next guy that she was with, but Russell stayed sober. He got into therapy twice a week. He let his brain chemistry revert back to that of someone who didn't gorge themselves on alcohol six days a week. Somewhere along the line, he had lost his job at the Golden West Cafe too. Again, he promoted himself to customer. Actually, he had been banned from drinking at the bar. He really opened his eyes to his place in that scene as well. I started realizing that it was a very exclusive scene and try as I might, 
I wasn't really as much a part of it as I, I was kind of an interloper or just like a, a, a tourist in it. People like knew me for being like a, a sleepy problem drunk. So like, why would they, why would they really want to welcome me in? Uh, I, you know, it's, it's hard to blame them. I hope that you were as inspired as I am by the perspective that he now has, the awareness that he has of himself, his willingness to celebrate his vulnerability. At the moment, he's accumulated nearly a decade of sobriety under his belt. He still takes it one day at a time, just like the rest of us. He went back to trade school and got a degree and a good job. He saved his money, and he even found his way into a healthy relationship. The first couple of times I went and had dinner with my girlfriend's parents, there would be times where there was like, you know, quieter moments or like moments that lulled in the conversation. And I felt the need to fill up that air. And afterwards, she'd be like, you know, like, it's okay. You don't have to be on all the time. Sometimes with me and my family, like we will talk about something and then we'll digest it for a little bit. And then we'll like move on or we'll talk about it some more, which is totally legitimate. But in my brain, it's just like, no one's saying anything. And I'm failing right now because of that. I'm right. the failure. It's on me to make sure that this is is great the whole time. And that's like, you know, that's just, uh, that's just not true. I, I mean, that's probably another delusion that I will live with until I'm dead, is that people hold very high expectations of me regardless of the situation. But I think that comes more with like the sobriety than anything else. It's like, because I, I hold myself more accountable now than I ever did when I was drinking and drugging. And we land on accountability. Beautiful. I want to thank Russell for his story today, for his transparency and his humility, from his journey as a quote, sleepy problem drunk to truly one of my favorite people to talk to. Russell, I love you, man. It has obviously taken a long road to get here, and you can hear it in his perspective that he has earned it with every single step. You can follow Russell on Instagram at Mr. Fish of London. That's Mr. M-R Fish of London. At the moment, he is psyching himself up to start his own podcast, and I hope that you'll send him a message and say, do it. Russell, you are authentic and charming and articulate, and I promise you, your creativity will live far beyond flashes of brilliance, if only you give it the opportunity. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. If you are finding yourself connecting with the show, then please rate us with five stars. Leave us a nice review on Apple iTunes. That's the Purple Podcast app. That would really help us a lot. We've got great stories coming every Monday for you. You're definitely not going to want to miss next week for a story that I'm calling Dangerous Laziness. I know the story pretty well. It's like kind of like unforgettable to live with a roommate that has like a full psychotic break from reality. Maybe he's on drugs. We don't know. Like as much as I tried to repress it, I guess that like I could kind of point out the moments where I am like also the delusional one in the story, which starts relatively early on. There are all sorts of ways that you can support us. Show us some love on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. You can literally send us $1.43 or whatever you want to give us is appreciated. If you have a necessary delusion of your own and you would like to share it, then please email me at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at yesmatthew where I post daily delusional content and updates. We'll see you next week. But how did you see yourself, though? 
Oh, well, I think I saw myself as probably misunderstood loner, but without the urge to like kill everyone at the workplace, you know? Sure. Because of just being diluted by being drunk or by being coked up or whatever, I would be in a room full of people and then I would suck all the air out of it by trying to do something to bring focus onto myself. And then thinking back on that and feeling still embarrassed by it to this day. Oh, I, think, yeah. I think I got to a point where I was like so disillusioned by it that I wanted people to like dislike me, but still respect me. I was into the idea of them being like, that guy sucks, but God damn it, I respect him. <laughs> <laughs> and I had done nothing to earn that respect. Right. That, that is a, no, that is a, you want a delusion. That is as deluded as it gets. 